This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on the dedicated Open the Voice Gate podcast feed on all podcast applications and platforms of your choice. This episode we will be covering, because I didn't mention initially, Enter the Dragon 2010, the one-year anniversary show of Dragon Gate USA taking place on July 24th, 2010. I'm one of your hosts, it's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined as always by my good friend and co-host, uh, Case Lowe. And Case, what a year it's been already in Dragon Gate USA. I thought you were going to say what a year it's been in life, uh, <laughs> which has been rather eventful. I, I mean, the no. last month has felt like a year. You know, I'll make this quick because we've got a really busy show, but I, I, want, I didn't get a chance to say this to you before I went on the air. There was a food truck in my neighborhood tonight. Uh, I think it, I'm assuming it was somebody that lived in the neighborhood that had a food truck. And there was a message posted on the neighborhood Facebook. I'll be serving meals out of the food truck, you know, low, low cost, whatever, stop on by, say hi. So me and my mom, and my dad, we went out to the food truck. We had masks on because we're good citizens. Most of the people there had masks on. It's probably 80% of the people. There are a few stragglers. Um, but it hit me then that I had not been around anybody other than my family in two months at this point and the anxieties that i was having standing six feet apart from strangers far toppled any social anxiety i've ever had in my entire life i was petrified standing out there and it is a weird thing that i am now coming to grips with that this is just kind of the reality that i'm living in it's been a stressful few months we've been living in turmoil and Dragon Gate USA's first year has been quite chaotic, if you ask me. Yeah, it's been quite a time for the company as they are, we're one year out of basically four done. So we're a quarter way through pretty much the meaningful part of Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, I had an occasion that made me have to go to the post office because I had to fill out a cousin's form. And it was very, I did this last Friday, and it was very remarkable to me, one, South Carolina has its own independent streak. I mean, we were one of the first states to open up because they believe that the economy is a healthy person. So <laughs> that so, so, so uh, there were people out there, but the thing that kind of struck me was, so I had to go to the post office, and one, like you, I'm a good citizen. I had masks, gloves, and, you know, did the whole kit and caboodle. But when I was there, I was kind of surprised by how many people were observing proper social protocol, standing six feet away, having their gloves and some not, or having their masks on that for many people had gloves on and the thing that like really struck me was 
and and it's some of the things that was like oh man but at the same point i'm like okay the post office instead of having plexiglass because where i live i mean it is one of the more populous places in the state but it's still it's no chicago it's no philadelphia there's no plexiglass dead shower curtain linings up there to protect the postal workers so everyone think of your postal workers during this time that's very southern yeah. i'm sorry to say but oh, no, as yeah. someone that it just you know i have uh, a continuous battle with whether or not i like the peace and tranquility of the south or if i loathe it that is very Southern, Mike, and not in a super positive way. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, the other big Southern note that just that I thought was really remarkable is right before the shutdown, there was a run on ammunition in my area. Hi. I oh, hell yeah, South. brother. And there was a news article about this that a guy's like, well, I'm not going to be going into work for a while, so I might as well do what I want. Him being at a gun store. And he said, but they were all out of bullets. And it worries me that, that someone has more ammunition than I do. That is horrifying. Um, that is that is a frightening way of analyzing life. I will say at the at the food truck tonight, uh, there was a woman there wearing a I stand for the flag, I kneel at the cross sweatshirt. And if you would have told me that was going to be there, I would have bet my life savings that there would be no mask on that individual. But sure enough, she had a mask on, which. I found it to be very funny for some reason. That felt like almost a contradiction, and uh, I'm sure the way she receives her news. It was very interesting <laughs> to me. Bless her heart. I'll, t- I'll take the good with the bad at this point. Yeah. I just want people to wear a mask. Right, right. Well, but... this is the Voices of Wrestling flagship <laughs> podcast. Uh, Mike and I are going to talk about Hot Pocket for another 20 minutes, and three hours later, you will have your takes on Drangate USA that you clicked on this podcast for. Right, right, right. This will be the one that goes up as the overrun here, but we are not here <laughs> to talk about uh, Hot Pockets for three hours. We're here to talk about Enter the Dragon 2010, the first anniversary of Dragon Gate USA. This took place, as I mentioned at the top, in July 24th, 2010, which is a pretty big break between the last shows that we had up north of the border that I think were May 7th, May 8th, I want to say off the top of my head. I don't, That's I, correct. I, oh, well, look at me. I remembered that. I could have just turned a page in my notebook and looked that up myself. But we have, we have, a, we have a lot of t- stuff that has occurred in the meantime, and we spent a lot of time kind of parsing what's worth talking, what's worth talking about. But Case, I know you have our path to grace in this year. So uh, lead us off here. What June is our 1st. Timeline? Oh, go ahead. What is oh, our timeline there, for the I show? I stepped on it. Oh, boy. Well, June 1st, 2010, Gabe Sapolsky says, we are pleased to announce the comprehensive talent list for the first anniversary celebration on July 24th in Philadelphia. And that talent list includes... The war ends the Chikara Sekigun versus Kamikaze USA match that had no stipulations or participants at the time. And the talent roster includes the then Open the Dream Gate champion Yamato, Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk, the Philadelphia debut of Masaki Mochizuki, Shingo Shima, Dragon Kid, Naruki Doi, Masato Yoshino, Quackenbush, Jigsaw, Jimmy Jacobs, John Moxley, Johnny Gargano, and Chuck Taylor as your first. Names announced for the first anniversary Dragon Gate USA show. A lot of familiar faces and one name at the end there who will be debuting. Yeah, and really, when watching the show, and we'll get into the match itself, Chuck Taylor at this point was a... He did do PWG, but he was moonly, like he was moonlighting basically in Chikara at this time. And this was like a first big step forward for someone that like is two months younger, older than me. So I was like, oh, hell yeah. Chuck Taylor is getting a, a spot here. 
And I thought that was very interesting, the fact that Chuck Taylor was the last person mentioned on that list, as he will be someone that will intersect and we'll see the trials and travails of Chuck Taylor throughout Dragon Gate USA. What what were your thoughts about like 2010 Chuck Taylor? I like him a lot because Taylor does some really sneaky good work in PWG at this time period, both his feud with El Generico in 2009 and then the men of low, low moral fiber with Kenny Omega around this time period as well. And then you have to remember that Taylor is a heavily pushed commodity in Evolve at this point. Now, granted, the way he's being pushed Insane. is almost it's almost that of an anti-push because he was in a qualifying match on the first show. So he won the match, but it didn't contribute to his record. And then he goes on and wins a bunch of matches, including the main event of Evolve 3 against Claudio Casagnoli. And then it becomes, well... You know, Taylor's saying, well, you know, I, I wasn't even supposed to be here. Now I'm beating your main eventers. How does that make you guys feel? And so from one Gabe Sapolsky to another, Chuck Taylor is welcomed into Drangate USA, and I'm all for it. Yeah, and it's, it was one of those things that Chuck Taylor at this time was really felt like someone that was going to come up. He was one of, like, one of the first viral wrestlers, like even before like the most illegal thing in the match, because he had the videos out of him making children cry at IWA Mid-South and Deep-South shows and more so he was more known as the trainer slash driving partner slash whenever they did a debut it was always going to be chuck taylor versus ricochet so these two were like intrinsically linked at this time and it's very interesting that like chuck taylor as someone who's really finally over the last three years kind of got what he was worth like because i thought in 2010 like if you compare 2010 chuck taylor to 2020 chuck taylor especially out of everyone in this match when we get to it He's pretty much fully formed in 2010. He just like gets smarter about certain things, but there's not like he's not at like the uh, potential of Ricochet, uh, Adam Cole's deviations. He's already solid Chuck Taylor at, at the jump in Dragon Gate USA and in Evolve. Like he was fun in Evolve then too. I'll just say this. I think it's criminal that Chuck Taylor was not on national TV until 2019 because he is someone that never really has bad matches and has sneaky great matches from time to time. As Joe Lanza has pointed out, Chuck Taylor is like one of the best plunder brawlers Absolutely. in all of wrestling now, which is something that again, like maybe he was pigeon held as a comedy guy for too long. And maybe the way he takes himself isn't exactly the most beneficial for his career in terms of people taking him seriously. Chuck Taylor is a damn good professional wrestler. And that was true as well in 2010. Yeah, no, man, he definitely is one of the best hardcore, not deathmatch, but plunder guys in wrestling today. Like, I completely agree with that. And it's a shame that this will be ten, almost nine years until he actually gets to make his national TV debut. So, But he made his national pay-per-view debut on this show. June 2nd on the Dragon Gate USA Newswire. Open the Freedom Gate champion BB Hulk is facing a lot of pressure. There are there are several athletes now claiming that they deserve an Open the Freedom Gate title shot. In fact, Hulk is getting so serious that he is stopping his famous dance routine. His last dance will be on June 13th, Kobe Sambo Hall in Japan. So a decade before we got the last dance, we got BB Hulk's last dance on June 13th. He, as well as Naruki Doi and Pac, defeated Shingo Yamato and Cyber Kong in a match that was filmed, but a match I have not seen. So Gabe is correct in that BB Hulk is taking himself more seriously at this point. It's maybe not because of the Open the Freedom Gate title, but more so because he is enlisted in a blood feud with his generational rival, Shingo Takagi, 
And that leads us to Kobe World 2010, the biggest show of the year, a match headlined by... Uh, it's a double main event. It is a hair versus hair match between Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk and the open the dream and gate title Masada Yoshino versus then champion Yamato. Mike, what are your memories of world 2010? Well, world 2010 is like really the kind of at that time, the peak of the uh, Shingo and uh, BB Hulk feud. Like, as you mentioned, like this blood feud, the generational rivals, like the big generational war between the, the two sides were always Shingo versus Hulk. Of course, they had their match in 2008 in the in the uh, Dreamgate title match that Shingo Takagi won. And like Hulk was trying to get himself more serious. This is also something that he was leaning a little bit more on the the Dark Hulk gimmick as well at this time. But like this this show had a lot of really interesting stuff on there. Uh, Tazawa comes back over. We have the Kobe World debut of Takuya Toma. Komai, Tomakomai. I'm so glad that we'll be referring to him as Tomahawk Tihi soon. We have Mark Haskins on a Kobe World show. And then we also have one of the all-time worst Kobe World matches in Aki Bono and Abdullah Butcher defeating Hollywood Soccer Chikawa, Sachioko Machine, who you all better know now as Sachioko Boy, Jackson, Florida, and Johnson, Florida. But really, the big story here and what would become the big lead to the Blood Warriors Junction 3 feud, and I feel like it's worth touching on here, is Masato Yoshino winning his first Dreamgate championship. Yeah, this is the culmination of Yoshino's first decade in wrestling. He comes in as a Toriyaman 2000 guy, the T2P generation, and it wasn't really until probably 2009, probably part of this DGUSA run this first year, that Yoshino is now looked at as a credible top-of-the-line guy because he had been a tag-team champion, he had dominated the Bravegate scene, but Yoshino becoming a tippy-top guy, in 2020, he is Gate both in the ring and in the office. In 2010, we are not at that level yet, and he is very unproven as a main eventer. This is the match that takes him to the next level, and I rewatched part of this show. I rewatched the version that is on Drangate Network, which is a clip two-hour digest of the show. It really primarily shows the last three matches, but even then, all of the matches are clipped. But the big thing that I took away from Yoshino versus Yamato, which goes on last, is the last five minutes of that match are peak dragon gate wrestling i mean the drama and the stakes the counters and the precision of all of the moves they do they all mean so much in yoshino at this point you can tell this is a big moment for him yoshino is so dialed in with everything he does it is not a great great match but it is a masterful performance from masada yoshino yeah and this was a big test for the true born generation the show he talked about how the digest has the we didn't mention it but the uh, a really solid twin gate match between kaneska versus the mochi fuji team of veterans veterans there but your top two matches in this are singles matches involving true borns or people that would later be called the top the big six and this was a time that attendance was doctored across the entire wrestling world in japan but this was shown as having the exact same attendance as the last year's Kobe Kobe World uh, Pro Wrestling Festival, which had Shima in the main event. So this was like a big moment for the company. And really something that 
it's difficult really to define eras in this company. And I feel like that we really choose like the big six era starts with Shingo Takaki defeating Shima at the end of his monster tile reign, right? But this is kind of like the four, this is like the foreboding thing of like, this is what's going to happen in the future. And it seemed like it was an immediate success out of the gate. Yeah, there's, I guess, different theories on the level of success that this first big six run had, because you have to remember that Yoshino loses the title to Masaki Mochizuki. And then from Mochizuki, who has the greatest Dreamgate run of all time, you then go to Shima, who has his monstrous reign. So it's clear that they tried something with the big six here, with Doi becoming champion, then Yamato, then Yoshino. Whether it worked or not, it's really impossible to say because we know at this point that the attendance numbers are completely out of whack. There are varying theories on whether or not it worked. All we know is that it eventually got them to where they needed to go, which is the position they're in now. Yeah. And like you said, it, you know, it begins to take place here. I think this is a big moment in the company and one that just because 2010 is so weird, it's maybe not looked at as a seminal flagship moment, but when Yoshino is retired and when the video package is created for him, there is going to be plenty of footage of this match because it was a really big deal for him. It was an absolutely huge deal. And this first reign, like it did go to two of the more important reigns of the 2010s, but defeated Shima in this reign, defeated Naruki Doi after he turned at on him at Final Gate, defeated Ryo Saito, defeated Don Fuji. All four of them at this time were former Dreamgate champions. So it wasn't like he was chopped liver here. And this would be the only over a, I'm going to count how many years here, over a five-year period case, this would be the only title change to happen at a Kobe World. That seems hard to believe. It would be, the one before this was at Kobe World 2008, the Shingo Takagi BB Hulk match, which I talked about earlier. The next one would be Shingo unseating Shima after 15 defenses. My goodness. Yeah, so like this is, and I think this is something like you could probably draw a similarity to Benkei that Benkei got his first tile reign out of the way before he's fully solidified as ace in a way. Like this was like a solidifying reign that he had. Doi, they threw everything at Doi and made him into, they, they tried to make him into a guy earlier. And then Yamato had a reign that he defeated Susumu Yokosuka. He defeated Shingo Takagi at Dead or Alive and he defeated Masaki Mochizuki. So they have, they're doing groundwork here, at least for those three guys over the 2008 into 2011. Well, and as for Takagi and Hulk, we'll touch on this match now, the hair versus hair match at World 2010. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen the match, there is a clipped version on Dragon Gate Network, but watching the clipped version is much better than not seeing the match at all because the clipped version gives you the hits. I mean, it is it is almost like a sports center highlight. It's move after move and impact after impact. It is one of the best matches in Dragon System history, I feel like it's one of the matches that is the full version is probably available out there if you know the right avenues to look down. It's a match that really captured the Western audience's attention, and it is a seminal match in the career of both men. Yeah, and I would, even though I'd say that the Final Gate 2014 is the best match of theirs, this had the stakes. This was building up since the end of New Hazards. Like, this is like a three year culmination where these guys right at each other's throat and it was a very appropriate uh burn off of the feud at least for the next few years before it would take a drastically different change in 2011 so that is the landscape in japan at this time as we transition back into the dragon gate usa 
June 2nd, it is announced that Super Shed Long, which Gabe spaces out Shin and Long, which for some reason is super funny to me. But Super Shin Long, a youngster in Dragon Gate, will have a special match on the bonus card of the one-year anniversary show. Mike, who is this version of Super Shen Long? So this is Super Shen Long 2, who everyone who's watching Dragon Gate now would better know as Bondi Ryu, a.k.a. also Ape Kamada. A.k.a. also Problem Dragon. Also Problem Dragon. He is... This is a gimmick he kind of sticks with after Dragon Gate Next ends. He kind of, like, hangs around. Like, he he's on shows, he's off shows. He famously... During this time, I think he starts his 50-match trial, where, like, he has, like, a really weird thing towards the end of it, and really into Mad Blanky, and this is kind of the time period that leads up to it, where he's kind of like a heelish mask guy. Like, he would constantly try to take off his mask in matches. Like, how how much of that have you seen of Shenlong? Very little. That's probably... I mean... It's purposeful, mind you. Yeah, it's purposeful. Uh, Shenlong is a guy that, like... You know, he was a part of the next class that would have KZ and Yamato and my personal favorite. Of of course, I'm talking about Lupus Matsutani, but he was just kind of like there in a lot of ways. And the idea that he was coming to Dragon Gate USA was kind of like a, really? You're bringing him over? Okay. Moment, at least I feel like for the fan base at that time. I like it just because it incorporates a young boy into the fold. And I think if you're going to be mimicking a Japanese product, it's important to have the dojo system at least visible at some points. They're doing the excursion with Tozawa. It would have been really cool at some point to see an even younger wrestler enter the fold uh, and really, you know, experiment with personalities and entering styles of the company. But that never really happens. Uh, it should be noted also June 2nd, FIP Sal is named Chief Operating Officer of Dragon Gate USA. I thought he was with the company from the start, but I guess I'm wrong. I mean, he was with the company, but he wasn't with the company in an official sense, I would say. Uh, Sal Hamawai has always been someone who was involved with Gabe Sapolsky on the production side. If you have some of the Ring of Honor DVDs back then, you'll even see a WWN logo as that was his company. So he was always kind of affiliated, but now this was kind of like, okay, officially he is a part of the, what would be a very small Dragon Gate USA office. So it was him. Uh, yeah, I remember his last, I forgot the guy's last name, the guy in San Antonio. Do you remember his name? Uh, I know who you're thinking yeah, of, yeah. but I can't think of his name. There was someone in San Antonio. Was it OG? OG, that's right. Satoshi OG. And, yep, that's there you go. And Gabe Sapolsky and Toru Kido, who now is President Kido, were kind of considered like the office for Dragon Gate USA. So this kind of like, solidified something i know when i pulled out this note i was like huh i didn't know this was already a thing here and i think that was probably your response as well indeed and then we get to a double announcement june 17th 2010 brian danielson will wrestle on the july 24th first anniversary celebration in philadelphia at the arena he will not appear on the pay-per-view taping but the main event will be a main event dark match we are working at the details of his opponent but you better believe he'll be against one of dragon gate's best and then on june 22nd it is announced and i'll read this verbatim brian danielson versus shingo has been signed for july 24th in philadelphia at the arena enough said Ugh, what an annoying way to announce such a great match but mike Brian Danielson is back in the fold. Yeah, so this is right after the end of the first season of NXT, the launch of the Nexus angle, which I was at live, and then his subsequent firing for his actions in the Nexus angle. This was like a really wild time, and I know that with you, 
you're kind of going back and reading about it or something that's almost like history and like lore about this uh I, I'm interested in like your take. I've kind of dumped a lot of information on you about this entire situation that led to Brian Danielson being re-entered into Dragon Gate USA. What was your thoughts when you like were reading through the coverage of this? I mean, it was a situation that I had known about for years, but it was something that I mean, I hadn't investigated it since I was probably first watching this show. So you're talking 2014, right? Uh, which is when I, you know. Maybe even before that, because, you know, Danielson was a guy that I knew uh, I knew was in WWE and I was very interested in him and his Ring of Honor work. So I was probably reading about it at some point. But going this in depth, it is such a confusing story. And we will break down the timeline of the Danielson events as they occur in just a second. It is a really confusing story that it just feels very much of that time and place where there's just enough technology for people to have paranoia about whether or not this is an angle, but there's not the 24 hour news cycle that we've come to know. So there's a lot of mystery up in the air about what is exactly happening. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's a really fair way to put it. I mean, it's also very much of the time of where WWE was at, like what they were trying to do, like in 2010, that was the year that Impact tried to make a new Monday Night War, and that ended terribly. That's something that, while doing research for the Rewind and We Watch, I've enjoyed reading back on the, the, the foibles and fables of TNA on Monday Night. And then we had NXT start up with, was right after Brian Danielson was signed, he was announced for NXT. And it just was a very, just bizarre thing. Like, like living through it, I felt like it was kind of weird. But in retrospect, especially now, 10 years later incredibly weird thing to happen and very much like as you said like this could only really happen in this time frame this like this the story the bumps in the roads the misinformation could not happen in 2010 and 2020 whereas everyone would immediately either latch onto it or would try to break the story first so let's go through the danielson timeline of how we got here and we're going to begin with june 7th 2010 which is the nexus angle now i asked mike to rewatch this. Mike said he was in the building, but he wasn't sure if he had ever watched it back on tape. I had seen it before, but I hadn't seen it in years. Hadn't really thought about it in a long time. So Mike, what did you think about the, and this is the only time on this podcast we will ever break down a WWE segment. That is a rule I'm making because I never want to do it again. Yep. This is it guys. This is the Nexus angle and it relates to Drangate USA. So we're going to talk about it for just a second. Mike, what did you think of the angle itself? So at the time, I was at the show, and it was such a remarkable thing because it was this, like, going to shows since then, and especially over, like, the last year doing coverage for All Elite Wrestling, you definitely get the feeling of you're watching an event. This was, like, the last time that when I went to any sort of WWE show where it felt like I was watching history. And re-watching it on the, the cut that's on YouTube, which it's wild that they had, like, 23 minutes of it on the WWE YouTube now, case. Like, that's... Also something really of the time there. It just like everything about it like comes at you like at full force, like how different this company is 10 years later, how meaningless a lot of things about the WWE company is in 2020. Cause it's kind of impossible to compare like how raw was in front of crowds earlier this year versus how raw was in front of this really hot crowd in Miami in 2010. Like that was like the big thing. And then how like it all broke down and, it just like watching it like really like revigorated like my feelings at the time of the angle being there live. 
if that makes sense. So it's really interesting to look back on because it's a, oh, a match. It's a match between John Cena and CM Punk, and they're in the ring. And then Wade Barrett comes down and is staring at Cena. Cena's confused, but he keeps wrestling. And then Barrett gets closer to the ring, and Cena finally turns his attention to him. And as Cena does that, uh, we see Michael Tarver in the crowd, and then we see the NXT guys. Heath Slater, David Otunga, Justin Gabriel, Darren Young, Skip Sheffield, and Daniel Bryan all kind of pour out from the crowd, surround the ring, and then eventually attack John Cena. And what we get is about 15 uninterrupted minutes of chaos, which includes, as we'll talk about, not only does Daniel Bryan choke Justin Roberts with his own tie, which is objectively funny, uh, but he also spits in the face of John Cena and then kicks him in the head which are the high points of the angle. Our allegiance to Brian is unrelated to that. I just think they were by far the most entertaining things that happened. What stood out to me here is that I remember, at least in my mind, thinking that the Nexus angle was really vicious and that it felt totally different than a WWE production and that this was uh, an experimental thing that worked and then they just weren't able to follow up on. But when I when I watched it now... It was the wrestling angle equivalent of a mosh pit where there was a sense of danger for sure, but there was no real actual violence. Nexus cut up the ring and rolled the canvas around and they did wrestling moves to John Cena and to CM Punk and to Luke Gallows, who was on the outside. But with the exception of Danielson, I don't feel like it was all that like all that vicious or all that violent Now the crowd reacted to it. There were literal shrieks of horror from the audience at yeah. times, which speaks to John Cena's overness more so than anything. But it wasn't, it, I was disappointed by this angle. I just like, I remember it being so much more, but it kind of came across soft to me at points with the way they were handling things. Am I completely out to lunch here? No, because that was like the thing about, this unit like at least watching it live was they were supposed to be like these outsiders and they always try to make this like going through the coverage after this they talked about how they were instructed to wear the nexus armbands outside of the arenas they were instructed to refuse to sign autographs and it just was like they tried to like make this into an outsider thing but for and i think this is kind of like how wwe is in its indictment wwe the only person that got I'm an outsider. I need to treat this like an outsider-like thing. Was Danielson like what you said? Like he was the only one that was, did things that could be construed outside of wrestling as violent. I mean, the topper of this angle was not Danielson kicking, bus all kicking, uh, Cena's head. It was Justin Gabriel being forced on the top rope to give him a 450 splash, which was a really nice 450 splash. I will say, oh, I no, kind of forgot great one. he had that. Yeah, I kind of forgot he like he nailed the 450 splash, but he, he had the no, hesitation just, there that made it so cool. Cause he, like, he looked at it and pondered it and it just was like, Oh, this is it. And I feel like that was like a cool thing there, but that was it. I will say this about just Nexus as an aesthetic. They clearly, with the exception of Darren young, who looked awful, was awful and stood out as the least talented guy in a group of wrestlers that ultimately did not amount to much, Darren Young looked like he did not belong in that angle. But everybody else, Michael Tarver included, at least had a very good look to them. Now, in the case of Tarver, there's a moment where Danielson is yelling in John Cena's face, you are not better than me. And he goes to set up the roundhouse kick. And as Danielson starts to like wind up to kick, 
Michael Tarver steps in and punches John Cena in the mouth, <laughs> yes. which completely ruins Danielson's kick. And they have to like set it up all over again, which is everything you need to know about Michael Tarver. But from the look of everything, with the exception of Darren Young, it is the most aesthetically intriguing thing WWE has had that is non-CM Punk related in a very, very long time. But we would soon learn to find out that it was all for naught as we were losing Daniel Bryan of the Nexus. Yeah, and one last thing about the angle that I think another reason why aesthetically it looks so powerful, this was a time, and it would be many years later, that the WWE ring, other than like when they propped it to break when there was like a big show superplex, the ring, nothing ever happened with it. Like The ring ropes were taken down during this thing. That became a thing. Pulling up the ring canvas was not a thing at WWE or really mass- america wrestling really did during like the 2000s and then even in the attitude era so like it it definitely had a, a tonal shift and it was the only time that like going to a we show live where like you could tell like everyone was on edge after that angle because i was with my brother and one of our friends and we had like signs made up for like daniel bryan because this is what we did then and we wanted to take a photo of the sign right next to like the torn up ring after the uh show and the security was freaking out because like i don't think anyone was really clued in on it so the crowd reaction in a lot of way other than like the sheena the cena shrieks was really authentic and actually felt like oh shit like something of su substance is happening from the june 14th wrestling observer newsletter dave says the angle got super heat live and was compared to the original 1996 nwo angle that started the turnaround for the wcw business Everyone from the NXT roster, including the likes of Michael Tarver, Darren Young, and Skip Sheffield, were aggressive, showed great heel-like tendencies, and basically came through with flying colors. Backstage, the reaction was that they hit a home run. The vast majority of reactions were more strongly positive than any major angle in a long time. And before we comment on that, June 15th, 2010, from the Figure 4 Weekly website, the most talked about story of the weekend was the situation involving Brian Danielson, formerly Daniel Bryan on NXT, who was supposedly fired from WWE on Friday, June 11th. Whether or not the firing was legitimate became the most talked about internet story since the new Monday Night Wars started in January. So, Mike, we hit a point. It's receiving universal praise. Internet fans, the WWE universe, dirt sheet writers, if you want to use that term. Everybody seems to like it. But on June 11th, Daniel Bryan is fired from World Wrestling Entertainment. Yeah, and this was like nascent days of Twitter. Everyone on Twitter freaking out about this. At message boards going crazy because this was still firmly in the message board days of the days of posting. And it just was like such a wild thing because at this time, SmackDown was still on uh, CW on uh, Friday night. So like this happened before the show or like the show was taped and then like things were going on. And it just was such a wild thing. And like the next like the next like month or like the next like two weeks of this was just insanity, at least online to my recollection. So Brian Alvarez goes on to say in that same figure for a weekly, when WWE announced that Brian Danielson had been fired, it resulted in us having our biggest Saturday in the five years that we've been doing F4Wonline.com. Okay. Nearly that includes the Benoit murders. Yes, it's well, as Alvarez goes on Sorry, to say. I didn't, I didn't, I no, 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 you're good. Down. 
No, you're good. Uh, a, a Alvarez says, think about all the big UFC events that we've had on Saturday nights, including UFC 100. We had a ridiculous spike in traffic and a ridiculous number of signups. In terms of traffic on our board, and this goes to Mike's message board point, we broke the record first set the night Chris Benoit killed his family and had more traffic than the night that Ron Impact went head-to-head on January 4th. Keep in mind that the Benoit uh, situation was pre-merger. Otherwise, nothing in history would have topped that. Raw Monday uh, with Danielson and NXT, uh, the the NXT follow-up broke the January 4th record previously held. So this is clearly generating an online interest, and then Danielson being fired uh, throws a whole new wrinkle in this, but there is great fear, given the way the angle came off, that this might have been a work. And Alvarez goes on to say in that same June 15th figure four weekly, all of this leads to the analysis. Uh, all of this leads us to an analysis of the biggest debate of the weekend, whether Danielson was really fired or whether this is some sort of elaborate work that so far well is not doing a thing for WWE business whatsoever. As soon as the posting appeared on WWE.com, it was immediately assumed that it was a work to further the NXT angle, NXT angle. But within hours, it had become clear that not only had McMahon told everyone that the firing was legitimate, including people who work in executive positions and have nothing to do with creative, but Danielson was talking to promoters about future indie work and telling people, including some of his best friends in the company, who would be extremely hurt if it turned out that he was lying to them, that this was for real. The problem people had with the idea of it being a shoot was that it made absolutely no sense at all. A guy got fired for choking someone with a tie. He wasn't reprimanded or fined or suspended or sent back to developmental. He was just fired for something that he didn't even know wasn't allowed in the first place. On the other hand, it would make abs- it also made absolutely no sense for McMahon to lie to his employees. And we're talking about people with backgrounds in Disney and ESPN and Nickelodeon who operate like normal people in the real world in order to do some sort of weird Internet-driven work shoot angle with no conceivable payoff. So, Mike, the debate on whether or not this was a work or a shoot was real at this time. Yeah, and I think it's a big kind of difference on the people who were aggressively a part of the internet wrestling community and people who were on the outside who would have seen like Daniel Bryan on Raw other than appearances for the NXT season for like the first time and see this guy snap and they hear this guy got got fired so like there is justification at least for certain subsets of the wrestling fandom to draw this conclusion but this was something that immediately to me living through it I could tell that this was especially with all the crazy uh Vince McMahon stories of the of the day and age. Just it, it it was something that I don't like sounding like I'm being elitist here, but it was really how clued in people were to the wrestling industry. Pretty much dictated, I would say, if they believed this was a shoot or an angle. And the uh, uh, well, and that figure four Alvarez goes on to basically lay out whether or not it's a work or a shoot and gives multiple points to each theory. It's a really good read. If you want to refresh yourself on that, yeah, it is incredibly lengthy though. Yeah. So if you're, if you're an F4W subscriber, I recommend the June 15th, 2010 figure four. It's a really good breakdown of this situation. But by June 21st in the wrestling observer newsletter, Dave says, Danielson is already taking independent bookings all over the world with the caveat that during his 90 day, no compete, which goes through September 11th, that he can't work on television or pay-per-view. The belief is that he can be taped on the 724 GGUSA show in Philly, which is a pay-per-view because the show won't air until after September 11th. The only company he's outright banned from appearing for is TNA. He will remain on WWE payroll until September 11th, and after that, he is free to go to TNA. 
Danielson has already agreed to a slew of independent dates, including 626 for Chikara, 627 for AIW in Cleveland, 7-3 and 7-4 in Germany for WXW, 7-23 and 7-24 for Evolve and Dragon Gate USA. He would go on to wrestle Bobby Fish on that Evolve show, Evolve number four, and July 30th for PWG in Reseda, California. So Danielson hits the ground running with a number of high-profile independent dates. And this was, like, really remarkable because I distinctly remember that this was, like, people have talked about, like, how Colt Cabana got fired from WWE one day and then showed up in PWG the next day. But this was, like, the first, like, truly big one since then. And I remember, like, his t-shirt he had made, which was in the version of the Shepard Fahey uh, Obama poster. Like, I, I did you ever see this t-shirt or this logo of, like, Brian Danielson and, like, that stylized version? I would still like the shirt. I think it is a an outstanding professional wrestling apparel. Yeah. Yeah. So like this was happening and just pretty much for the time, the only places that are of indie renown at the time was not going to go to CZW. Never was a CZW guy, really going to at, at I'm blanking on this WXW at a time where WXW was the big European indie. And before they would have this most recent boom, like this was at a time where Dragon yeah, Gate there, was working. There's no, there's no scene in the UK at this point. Yeah. It is WXW. Yeah, yeah. So like the, this was happening, and it, and like the thing about like the 90 day non non compete, like this was at least for where I was versus where I am now. This was like the most indication to me at that time of how the 90 day non compete worked. Yes. Yeah, so in, in in the TNA thing, I mean, like you mentioned, this is the TNA Monday Night Wars. They are making an active effort to garner interest in any way possible. Now, Danielson wouldn't have fit in for a number of reasons. It would have been another abject TNA failure. So it's a good thing that he never ended up there. Well, but well look at look at his compatriot who left Ring of Honor at the exact same time in Nigel McGuinness. Like that is true. Well, and that I mean that's well that's that's a perfect example because Nigel got a huge push off the bat, and then was given nothing after uh, part one of Angle One. Right. Yeah. So at this time, and when we say like people that got like big intros, like Jeff Hardy showed up on that first episode of Monday Night Impact. Like they were putting bringing people in, and they were paying people at that time. So Danielson going to TNA. If you were in the WWE office, that was something you would have a legitimate concern of at that time. The final note on the Brian Danielson story for this episode, the Rewind and Rewatch, comes a week later on the June 28th Wrestling Observer when Dave says, Some more notes on Brian Danielson. While the choking of Justin Roberts with the tie was the firing offense according to, firing offense according to what Vince McMahon told Danielson when he fired him, it was noted by people in the company that the spitting on John Cena may have really been the reason. Vince hates spitting, and that has been banned at WWE rings for a long time. He has this hatred for spitting, people smoking cigarettes, and even sneezing and it is noted that if someone sneezes near him vince will then cut a promo on them for it <laughs> it is just something people put up with again there is almost no way that danielson can spit on cena without clearing it with him ahead of time so by june 28th danielson has been announced not only for the show but his opponent has been announced and it is unless it is a really elaborate work People by this point have begun to think okay no he really got fired and as we will discuss on this show it wasn't a guarantee that he was going back to WWE anytime soon. Yeah, and, and like other things that would make you believe that he was not going to go there anytime soon. There was, this was not really reported, but people were like, were talking about 
oh, is he going to go back to Japan? At that time, he would have been a Noah guy. And people were thinking, like, is he going to go back to Noah? Is he, since he's doing DGUSA, is he going to go do Dragon Gate in Japan? He opened up a new website at that time at Dragon, at BrianDanielson.tv, which at that time, having your own, having your own like website and like bookings does give you an indication that this is not a work whatsoever. Like at this point, given the two weeks or the three weeks since this happened, it was very clear that this was a firing. Yes, indeed. So from there, unless you have any more notes on Danielson, we pivot back to the Dragon Gate USA Newswire for the announcement on June 28th that Naruki Doi will face Dragon Kid on the one-year anniversary show. And then a follow-up on July 21st saying that Dragon Kid will be forced to cancel this Saturday's booking due to injury. He deeply apologizes to the fans. We thank you for understanding. And as of this writing, Naruki Doi has an open contract for Philly. And that is when Gabe goes, Gabe goes on to say, enter Drake Younger's name into the hat. He sent a promo to us stating his case for why he would be a good American representative for one of the Japanese stables. So J, uh, Drake Younger versus Naruki Doi is now on the show. And speaking of Americans, June 30th, Shima sent out a tweet saying, I want to make a challenge for July 24th. I want to test wrestlers to see if they are good enough for Warriors International or not. Who will accept and then Gabe Sapolsky goes on to break down a list of names that are feasible for Shima's open challenge, which include Johnny Gargano, Chuck Taylor, Lince Dorado, Ricochet, Cheech and Cloudy, Adam Cole, Rich Swan, and Brody Lee. Quite the list of names there for possible Warriors representatives. Yeah, and this is also a wild thing to think about. Shima was really active on social media. We talked about it with the MySpace post that he made that led to the formation of DGUSA, but doing this and like this and especially the American talent mentioned, they would be all over this one-year anniversary show. Yeah, no, Shima loves the stuff. He loves to tweet. He loved the MySpace. Uh, he's all over Instagram now. Shima's very online, which, given his dating career, good or bad, I'm not sure. Uh, a few notes as we round out the world of the independents. Akira Tozawa was back in PWG on June 11th at the Dio show. He defeated Scott Lost in an event that also featured a very disappointing main event of Paul London and El Generico versus Kevin Steen and Brian Kendrick. Uh, and then the night after the show, July 25th, Chikara put on Chikarasaurus Rex, a show that featured Shingo defeating Equinox, a Shima, Mochizuki, and Super Shenlong six-man against Fist of Chuck Taylor, Icarus, and Granakuma, and a main event of Hollow Wicked, Jigsaw, and Mike Quackenbush versus World One of Naruki Doi, Masada Yoshino, and BB Hulk. Mike, have you seen any of the matches just mentioned? Oh, yeah. I've seen the entire show. I saw it as of that when it happened initially it was a wild thing like this definitely seemed to be in a lot of ways payback for chakara and mike quackenbush being such like a strong ally of gabe during this time the first shows that gabe famously went back to after this were chakara shows like he would have like a table set up at some of those shows so it was such a remarkable thing like the the match that i remember more most out of all this is the uh shingo takaki versus Equinox match because that was like a match that was not announced. It just happened. And at, this was a time where Equinox this time was played by the wrestler Jimmy Olsen. Who was kind of a Chikara like loved wrestler. Who was like known as like being like the heavy fisted guy. Who was just a very impressive kind of wrestler. But like this was like a huge show. Because at the time 755 people in the ECW arena. When it was very hard for people to really draw in the ECW arena. And like the show also would have Awesome Kong and... Raisha Saeed, better known as cheerleader Melissa, go up against Daisy Hayes and Sarah Del Rey 
you had Tommy Dreamer make an appearance on the show, but you also had like Super Shenlong was on the show and was in a tag team with uh, Shima and Mochizuki, and then of course the uh, Chikara Saki Gun versus World One, which was a pretty strong match as well. I have not seen the Chikara stuff. I've seen the PWG stuff. Mike, I don't know if you saw my tweet last week. I I bought the Chikara show. I just ran out of time to watch it. But when I attempted to purchase the show from a Smart Mark, Smart Mark video, I put the show in my cart. I entered my home address. Oh, yeah. And then the, the next screen, Smart Mark video tried to charge me $22,000 for independent wrestling. Um. It was IWA Deep South VHSs. It was <laughs> IWA East Coast DVDs. It was stuff that I have no intention of buying ever. Smart Mark was very helpful. We got the situation figured out. At one point, the guy I was talking to was like, "Well, I think you just added everything from your wish list into your cart." And I was like, "Do you? I, I you don't know me, but I'm not trying to put an IWA Deep South VHS in my <laughs> cart." But thank you. We got it figured out. I just haven't had a chance to sit down and watch the show, but I will do that shortly. Our final note before we break down the show, July 12th, DG USA Newswire. John Moxley, the representative for Kamikaze USA, and Mike Quackenbush, the leader of Chikara Sekigun, have agreed that the Chikara versus Kamikaze match on July 24th in Philly will be an eight-man elimination match. And he goes on to say that John Moxley is bringing one of his friends to Drangate USA to fight Jimmy Jacobs. It will be Jimmy Jacobs versus Sammy Callahan, on the July 24th bonus card in Philadelphia. And boy, was that a bonus match. <laughs> uh, a, a bonus match main event anywhere in the country. So Moxley is fronting Kamikaze USA at this time. Before, the last thing we have to do before we break down Enter the Dragon is we have to talk about the original leader of Kamikaze USA just for one second. Our weekly Davy Richards check-in. It's a big one this week because on June... June 19th, 2010, Ring of Honor, Death Before Dishonor 8 from the Ted Reeve Arena in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It is a loaded show, one of the most infamous shows in Ring of Honor history, a show that has Kevin Steen versus El Generico, The All Night Express versus Up in Smoke, Delirious versus Austin Aries, a six, or a, what is that, a one, two, three, four, five, six, it was a six-man, a six-man gauntlet for the number one contendership for the Ring of Honor title, which was won by Roderick Strong, Christopher Daniels versus Kenny Omega, a no-DQ match between the Kings of Wrestling and the Briscoes, and the main event, Tyler Black defending the ROH World title against Davey Richards. He finally got that promised title shot. Yes, and it, it, uh, it did not pay off on this evening uh, on that show. But from what I remember, I haven't watched the match in years now. It is one of the better Davy matches if everything holds up the way I think it would. Yeah, and especially like this would be toward the end of Tyler Black's tenure in Ring of Honor as well. So it was an interesting thing, and especially they they were running the Ted Reeve Arena, I think, at that time. Yes. Very soon after the DGUSA show, and I think they tripled the attendance. So... Gives you a stake of how the landscape was at that time. Mike, are you ready to enter the dragon? I'm not only ready to enter the dragon. I'm ready to enter the dragon for 2010 to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Dragon Gate USA. So this happened at the ECW Arena. Attendance, I do not have an exact number. I have seen various sightings of between 700 and 800, which was about where they had the shows initially. So... Strong show, but then again, you have the big return, Philly return of Brian Danielson that definitely would have helped walk up on it. Uh, running down the uh, 
bonus card first. We have Shenlong was there, so he got and he was a rookie, so he kind of got put in a rookie match as he faced Lince Dorado, and that went to a 10-minute draw. Here's a match that tells you about the sign of the times. I think we talked about this last week. There are some names on this show. Cheech and Cloudy defeat Rex Reed and Tommaso Ciampa in five minutes. An incredible sounding bonus match. Yeah, yeah. Cheech and Cloudy this time was like one of those like indie tag teams that never would get much farther than like Chikara, but they were a fun tag team at that time. Famously, Cloudy once got kicked so hard by Granakuma that he had hide underneath the ring to throw up. So that was just an aside there. That was just a little nugget for you, Case. That's good. I did not know that. Yeah. And the last dark match was Jimmy Jacobs defeating Sammy Callahan in nine minutes and 24 seconds. And that concluded the bonus card. And then everything else that happened made the cut that is online. It is worth noting that this week, as we were recording this episode, WWN Live's YouTube account has the complete aired edition of Enter the Dragon 2010, including the Shingo Takagi versus uh brian danielson match so everything else that we're gonna be talking about here is on this version that is now freely available on youtube hey i wonder if there's some sort of like crossover or some podcast that might have given a company an idea that this is a good enough show to put up on youtube for free right now case i'm not sure what you mean mike i'm pretty sure the people in charge of that youtube account hate us or at least me (laughs) yeah that i've been an active supporter and defender of this company for years now with the exception of the past 18 months but before that (laughs) an active supporter and defender and my feelings are hurt that we are not getting any sort of quote tweet with a positive hey go check out this podcast it's ridiculous do you think candy cartwright knows of open the voice gate talking about dragon gate usa shows I don't think I, so. I hope she does. <laughs> well, but that's that. I don't need her to listen. I just need her to DM us. <laughs> I'm saying out the DMs at night. Anyways, opening the show, we started off in the ring with Shima telling, pe- trying to rev people up. Super Shenlong too is at ringside, being the young boy the entire show. He is at ringside with him in a very snazzy con art T-shirt. As Shima is revving up the crowd, Giant Gargano hits the ring and he calls Shima. Brochacho, and he wants in on Warriors, but Shima thinks he's joking. And Shima, just like being Shima, just like I'm looking at Alvarez's notes, and he said, uh, Johnny Gargano, what are you talking about? Are you serious? How's my English? Everyone cheered. <laughs> it's true. Shima had a lot of talking in this segment, and he killed all of it. It was really entertaining to watch. And and that led to the match Shima versus Johnny Gargano. Shima defeated Gargano in 11 minutes and 54 seconds with the Meteora. I think this is one of the matches that's on the uh, combination Gabe Sapolsky, uh, Johnny Gargano, like Next Evolution shoot tape. I think that it is on uh, the Kayfabe commentary productions that is now on the High Spots Network. So if you'd like to watch this match uh, with Gabe and Gargano, they break it down uh, as they watch it, it's a, it's a very entertaining watch. I watched it about a month ago and thoroughly enjoyed the entire interview. Yeah, I really enjoyed this opener. I thought that Jai Gargano, we saw how he was at Freedom Gate kind of being the odd person out in that fray for the title. And then he kind of disappeared. And now he became more of an on-screen figure and definitely worked trying to get the character stuff o- over. So this crowd knew who he was. And I thought that this was kind of a take on the Shima punishing a younger wrestler trope that actually worked out pretty well and i ended up really enjoying this match i've seen this match like now like four or five times but like this time i was really like focusing in on it and i came out with this like three and a half stars i i thought this was a pretty strong opener 
I'm going to warn the audience now. I have a lot of positive things to say about Gabe Sapolsky for the rest of this podcast. And one of them is the fact that Gargano, since really opened the Freedom Gate, the third show, Mm -hmm. had been a featured commodity and was mentioned in the newswires and was doing the power hour, which wrapped up right before this match, was on shows doing promo segments, but wasn't in uh, main card matches. So his first big match since opened the Freedom Gate in, in last November was the opening match on the anniversary show against Shima. And it is a really smart move that Gabe waited this long to give Gargano the opportunity. And then Gargano stepped up the plate and knocked it out of the park against Shima. These two had excellent chemistry. I believe the plan, well, actually, I know the plan, was at one point to have, uh, in 2014, to have another singles match between these two, and it didn't happen, which is a shame, because their only singles matches are this one, and then another match in 2011 that we'll get to on the series eventually. But these two have excellent chemistry. I think Gargano has just enough, like, faux puro ability in him to hang with Shima and Shima knows just enough American wrestling to play into Gargano's strengths. And what we get is a match that has plenty of energy, plenty of character work an an excellent closing stretch as Gargano kicks out of the perfect driver, but he can only survive the onslaught for so long. Shima hits the Schwine and the Meteora and puts him away in an excellent, as Mike said, three and a half star opener. Yeah. It just was a match that, at this point, we've now seen Shima in a lot of these matches and throughout his career where you could tell when he's enthused to work with someone and that he was caring. And if and if he was working with someone in a way that he was like, oh, this guy is so beneath me, I'm just going to eat his lunch. This was a match that, as you said, like the styles meshed so well and giving him the big kick out on the perfect driver, which is a big move for Shima. And Shima doing the Takarev, doing Super Draw, and then saying like, okay, I'm done with this guy and going Schwine Meteora was like definitely a thing that made Gargano feel like, okay, this guy's made a step forward. And you know, this is probably a statement of his last three years. Johnny Gargano in 2010, like watching him, like I'm, he's really interesting as a wrestler at this time. And I feel like that, that made us a pretty special match. All I could think was that Gargano's body looked like shit in this match oh, compared no, to wild. like the eight abbed NXT Gargano that we have now. And even by the end of his indie run, I mean, Gargano's in ridiculous shape, but he's just like lanky. really lanky. That's exactly, he's so lanky. Like his body is so just, he hasn't filled out, but he's still basically a child at this point. And that was my biggest takeaway is like Gargano is pretty good in the ring. Shima can definitely work with him. It looks like Shima respects him. My God, this guy needs to put on some muscle. Yeah, he would have been 22 years old. That makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, also, like, I, I think, like, his haircut now is terrible. I like, like, the the really, like, weird long hair ponytail Johnny Gargano. Like, that dipshit. Like, this is the Johnny Gargano that I really enjoyed for a long time. And I thought that this was a great way, and he knocked it out of the park here. After the match, Shima made sure to shake everyone's hand. He shaked the referee's hand. He shaked... The uh, ring ref's hand. He shaked a couple people at ringside's hand. He even shaked Super Shenlong 2's hand. Whose hand did he not shake, Case? John Boy, Johnny Organo. John Boy got stiffed here, and that led to a couple of backstage things. First, we had uh, Lenny Leonard and, and uh, Chikarsen basically just pitching to Drake Younger. This was the repeat of like a Drake Younger promo. Drake, bless his heart, not a promo. 
Like this is just did not really work as a promo guy in my opinion. And then Well, I will say this. Not at this time. Not this time. It is a it is a shame that Drake basically by the time he figured out uh how to work at a super high level and how to connect with an audience is when he was signed and stopped wrestling. Yeah. Uh, I, I will discuss it further as we get into the match. Uh, this era of Drake younger does nothing for me though. Whereas 2012, 2013 Drake younger, I don't know how it holds up, but at the time I was a huge fan. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I would have loved to see a 2020 Chuck Taylor versus 2013 Drake Lee younger, like, a guerrilla warfare match oh my god that would have been beautiful that would have been amazing but that was not what we were having here then as this was the one year anniversary we had clips of each of the previous shows in dg usa the first one was the post match where granakuma turned on mike quackenbush with yamato and the and the formation the nexus the beginning of kamikaze usa and that led us to a four-way fray i think he called it four-way freestyle where it was chuck taylor Adam Cole, Eric Cannon, and Ricochet, where Chuck Taylor got the pin on Ricochet in 9 minutes and 42 seconds with the awful waffle. In case, I'm just going to pitch it to you because I know you have a lot of feelings about this match. Mike, this match was better than I remember it being, and I knew I loved this match going in. This is rare air. This is an independent wrestling match that really can only work on this level of fame and stature and notoriety. And it was delivered to perfection. It is the best version of this match that was possible with these four guys at this level in their career, because every single person in this match contributes equally. You have Eric Cannon, who was this bulldozer. He uses his size and he uses his clubbing right hand to perfection. You have a guy like Chuck Taylor, who, by the way, during the introductions, Chuck Taylor is the most over guy in this four-way match. And Taylor is the glue. At this point, he is the veteran. He holds things together and he has the most character in this match. You have Adam Cole who is doing high spots and working (laughs) at such a quick and frantic pace. It is unbelievable because at this time, two years later, 2012, you're beginning to see chin lock Adam Cole, and you're starting to see Adam Cole work more methodically. Adam Cole in this match goes for broke. He is throwing everything he has at these guys. And then you have Ricochet, who has not been to Japan, who was unmolded, whose trainer was Chuck Taylor. That is who Ricochet learned to wrestle from. And Ricochet is out of his fucking mind in this match. It is an insane four-way. It is a spectacle that needs to be seen to believed. It is not the best match on this show. Many of the men in this match would go on to have better career matches but with these four involved, this is one of my favorite matches in the, I'm not going to say of all time, but I will say in American independent professional wrestling, this is one of my favorite matches that fits that category. And this is a match that in a lot of ways, you look at a lot of these people in this match, particularly Adam Cole and Ricochet, and you talk about Adam Cole, but Ricochet at this time. This was, he was a Chikara guy. He was an IWA Mid-South guy. I do not believe he was really working a PWG at this time. and But he already had somewhat of a track record. And this is deviating a little bit from the script here. Shima 
wanted to have Ricochet in Dragon Gate as soon as he found a YouTube video that Chuck Taylor put up of Ricochet doing the double moonsault. During the tryout, people sat and saw Shima, just was kind of like going, okay, but then he saw Ricochet, and he constantly was like, double moonsault, I want to see the double moonsault. And the lore goes that pretty much after he did a double moonsault there and did one this match, Ricochet's ticket and path to Dragon Gate was set. This that day. I mean, that is the way the story goes, that as soon as Shima saw that, he said, you are coming to Japan. Yeah, so, and he, along with Chuck Taylor, like, this is our first, like, real introduction to them in this series, and these are two people that would become, along with Johnny Gargano and Rick Swan, really the people that really went to DGUSA, went to DG, and ended up, like, this was, like, their catapulting forward to various levels. And it's just, like, interesting watching this match. As you said, Chuck Taylor is the glue. He is someone that wrestled since he was, like, 15 and was, like, had to go across the border to wrestle because you couldn't wrestle in Kentucky at that age. And he's already, like, such a veteran. And in a match like this, directing things, like, in such a way, especially with Ricochet, his uh, protege, the guy that he basically was having the spotlight match with for so long. And it is something in this match. The finishing stretches. Ricochet seems like he's going to be able to put him away. He goes for the double moonsault. There's no water in the pool. Did you notice Super Shenlaw's Shenlaw's reaction because he was right in frame when this happened? I didn't see the reaction. I know I yelled, oh shit, when he hit the ground because it was the gnarliest miss ever. I could not believe the way he hit the ground. Shenlong, he probably said, oh shit, because he like, he like picked <laughs> his head up and went like crazy. And then for, for whatever reason, probably familiarity, familiarity, Ricochet takes the nastiest bump on the awful waffle and gets the pen. And this is going to be a real interesting like next while because now we have Chuck Taylor and Ricochet and Drangate USA. Well, in to an extent, Eric Cannon as well. Oh, I right, mean, yeah, Eric Cannon I, has to be mentioned in this, who absolutely. is someone who, uh, you know, toured Drangate in 2007, and you know, it, it Cannon got that tour partially through Wrestle Society X connections. Matt Seidel had also just been signed; they needed another American, so Cannon. Uh, somehow was next on the call sheet, likely a recommendation from Matt Seidel. But Cannon becomes an integral part and headlines future DGUSA shows in this building. Now, the difference is we're talking about Ricochet, Adam Cole, Chuck Taylor, guys that you can watch on TV on Monday or Wednesday nights now. And Eric Cannon, who has a very respectable independent professional wrestling career, but is just not on their level. But this is very clearly designed as the four guys and had Cole stayed, he definitely would have been one of them as the four guys that would have been the American brigade that Drangate USA needed. Mike, I will ask you this in the pantheon of great indie debuts, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but in the pantheon of great indie debuts, the matches that come to mind besides this Trevor Lee, Andrew Everett and Cedric Alexander from PWG mystery vortex Two. There is the Generation Next main event, which is the Generation Next guys against Jimmy Rave, John Walter, and the Briscoes from 2004. I think the other one, and I'm determining this by not dream matches, guys that would later go on to play integral parts in the promotion. The other one that comes to mind is Battle of Los Angeles 2014 Night 1. The Young Bucks and Adam Cole against Kenny Omega, Chuck Taylor, and the debuting Zack Sabre Jr. To me, those three matches along with this four-way feel like the biggest seismic booms in terms of an independent wrestling debut that there have been 
since the indie boom of 2002. Off the top of your head, is there anything I'm forgetting that can demonstrate just how impactful this four-way was on the company? You know what? Not just for the company, but for the landscape and how independent wrestling was at this time. Like we've talked before about like we are in this era post-punk, post uh, uh, Austin Aries is still a member, but he's kind of like been like floating in between promotions this time. Danielson, as we see, he's back now for a short period of time. Like this is a lull before like this is like a peak before what we saw would happen in 2015 through 2018. This really like set the course and I completely did Eric Cannon disservice by not really mentioning him in this. He is such a interesting wrestler just because he is the power junior here. He has like such believable strikes. He still has one of the best like right hands of the time here. And you like look at this and you look at how things go. Like Eric Cannon, at least with like from what I understand around Minneapolis, Minnesota with first wrestling, like that is like a legitimate thing that's been running now, I think for like the last six or seven years, I want to say, but like, this is up there, like, the ones that, like, really stick out with me. And maybe it is that, for me, I was all aware, I mean, Taylor, Cannon, and Ricochet were known quantities to me because I was a Jakara fan. But, like, Adam Cole was, like, the CZW kid who was breaking out here. This would set the path, really, up until uh, Cole goes to Japan and joins Bullet Club. Ricochet comes back from Japan and signs with WWE. And Chuck Taylor with best friends taking off and now being of AEW. Like, this really set forth, like, what the next decade would be. It's a brilliant match. It is all action. It is all intensity. I was stunned at just how great this was because I think it was exactly what it was supposed to be. Mike, I gave the four-way four and a half stars. You see, I give it four. And I, and I think most people would, yeah. to be fair. I think four is a very fair rating. But I was so blown away at the execution of not only the moves in this match, but the style of match that they were going for, that it really took it over the top for me. I, I, I will put this in further context case. This is my second highest rating on the show. Yes. Now, there's other matches on the show I really, really like. But yes, this is the second best match on the show. Yeah, so definitely you're pulling up YouTube. Sit through this match. It, it is absolutely worth it. Uh, unless you have anything else, we should probably should get moving further down the card because we have more backstage stuff. Let's do it. All right. Backstage, we have Kamikaze USA promo, which was basically John Moxley saying, we, d- we don't just have Gran Akuma here for his pretty face. He's a killer. And then he pitches it to Yamato, who talks about breaking people like beanstalks. Tozawa cuts like a very like just traditional promo. And Moxley's just cackling. And you can already see the chemistry that these two people would have over the next few years. I thought this was a pretty fun backstage promo. Mox continues to kill it in these segments. Yes. And then we had our next uh, history recap. This was Doi and Danielson. Makes sense they would choose this one and not our long-lost soul, Davey Richards, here. But that would lead us, speaking of Doi, to the singles match of Naruki Doi versus Drake Younger. Naruki Doi naturally won with the Bakatari sliding kick in 8 minutes and 44 seconds. And as we said, like this isn't peak Drake, and Naruki Doi was wrestling in a T-shirt. He did not really take it out of second gear. Uh, did DK get hurt at the four-way match at Kobe World? Was that the idea? I, he must have, just yeah. given just when the injury was announced. So, not really impressive match, but given the circumstances, I feel like this was 
okay it was like drake was trying but just did not seem there was much chemistry or much energy here and the pace didn't really work with naruki doi i would say here no this is it's a bad fit for drake in 2010 it's probably a bad fit for drake in 2013 uh he's just not a guy that is going to fit in with this promotion outside of maybe getting his ass kicked by Masaki Mochizuki just because Drake is good at taking a oh, beating. That would have been great. There's, uh, I, we will end up circling back to this match. Mm-hmm. There's a point I will want to make later on in the show, but this is the weakest match on the show because it was eight minutes, but man, it felt like it was longer. And it's just, there's not much to it, which is a bummer because I really like Drake. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and Drake goes for it. Like, Drake does a somersault senton off the apron and hits bare concrete. Like, give it up for Drake. He cuts a promo afterwards, which again, Drake's not where he was. He uh, grabbed the microphone and seemed like he was freelancing a little bit until we see later. He wants to be the Naptown Dragon in Dragon Gate USA, which I thought was actually kind of a cute line from Mercedes. He's proud of taking an onslaught. He wants to join. And my line here says that would have been something. And then Gargano comes out, attacks him, and busts Drake younger open. I will say this as somebody that resides currently in Naptown. I was not on board with the Naptown Dragon nickname. I forgot that he had Drake that tattoo. used to call himself that. Totally forgot about that. And then he said that. I was like, oh, oh, no, 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 no. Like, Indiana has come to love Naptown. We've adopted it as our own. Something about the Naptown Dragon. I was like, man, like, and I don't know. I would love to know where exactly Drake grew up in Indianapolis because I have I have an idea, just given what I know about Drake. I think I know where he's from. But the Naptown Dragon was very much like, yeah, I'm not going to claim that one. Uh, but the Gargano beatdown afterwards, I was a big fan of because Gargano was excellent on the show. Yeah, I mean, Gargano, in a show where he was put in a tough situation, knocked it out of the park, where a lot of the younger American talent knocked it out of the park, the debuting younger American talent. We'll get into the pre-existing American talent later. Then we had a Chikarasaki gun promo. Yoshino seems like he has no idea what's going on and cuts his own promo about proving his strength as Dreamgate champion. Yeah, Quack does a whole thing where he says he needs someone that hates Yamato as much as he does. He says that person is Masato Yoshino, who won the Dreamgate title at Kobe World, so he's sporting the new belt here. Yeah, V2 make its debut this this show. I think it's like the first appearance of it. I don't remember it happening at Kobe World. Mm, I don't remember off the top of my head. All I know is that this was a Quackenbush promo, which means it was unnecessarily goofy at times. And Yoshino completely no-sold it, which was indeed tremendous. Then we had a clip from Freedom Gate. It was BB Hulk winning the title, and that led to the Open the Freedom Gate match as BB Hulk made his next defense of the Freedom Gate title against Masaki Mochizuki. He defeated him in 21 minutes and 32 seconds with the first flash. And... Ooh boy, there's a lot of stuff to get into before we even talk about the match itself case because we got The Last Dance. The American version of The Last Dance, BB Hulk, like we said, stopped dancing in June in Japan and then loses to Shingo at World, gets his head shaved, and then decides to come out and do one more dance for the American crowd, which... I don't know. I debated on whether or not this annoyed me. I ultimately think because I had to debate myself on whether right. or not it annoyed me, it probably didn't. Because I get it. That's Hulk's deal, and it's Philly, and he was the first guy on the first show, and they loved the dance. I understand that. I would have liked a little bit more canonical acceptance from Gabe. Oh, you mean the okay, wig? <laughs> no, 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 no. I was more so I was like, I wish he just wouldn't have done the dance and just would have had a normal entrance, but... You know, it happens. It's whatever. 
yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's something. But uh, then we had the match, and these are two guys who have pretty solid chemistry. It's not my favorite Hulk matchup. It's always one that it was pretty solid. But it was something in this match where it went 21 minutes long. It was the second longest match on the show. And they did do a really smart idea, and I feel like that Lenny Leonard and Chikarsen really brought the idea of how hot it was in the arena. As someone who was in the arena year before this, they basically had no air conditioning. Like There was the figment of air conditioning. The air conditioning wasn't as bad as lack of air conditioning in Reseda, but you can see the sweat pouring off them throughout the match. Uh, Masaki Mochizuki was great because he was acting like a prick in this match. And, you know, this was probably out of the defenses he's had. I like this a lot more than the Yoshino defense. I really liked this match. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I liked it as much as the Yoshino match because I hated the last 30 seconds of it, basically. Mm -hmm. But Hulk and Mojizuki always have really good matches. They're a year away from headlining Kobe world. And one of my favorite Dragon Gate matches ever. Um, I, I was watching this and just the way Mochizuki was countering Hulk's offense. And then the way Hulk was able to bring it back to him, Obviously, BB Hulk is the successor to Magnum Tokyo in the character sense. But is BB Hulk the closest that DG has had to a second coming of Masaki Mochizuki when it comes to their in-ring style? You know, especially as Hulk got older, I think that that's a fair assessment. Especially with, like, this is, and I've not watched as much 2010 recently as you have. This is the first, like, big match. Remember him winning with the first Flash? Like... This is now like becoming like he's moving away from the EVO and the EVOP as finishers here. And it does feel like, especially 2020 Hulk, yeah, no, he's the closest thing. But like 2010, he this is like where he's gonna like really mold and really what we're gonna see when we start talking about Blood Warriors Hulk that comes in later in the next few years, a great difference in how BB Hulk is. And this kind of is a start to it. And I think that's a fair assessment to say that he might be second generation soul of the king of the kicker. You mentioned the first Flash. It is what Hulk ended up winning with, although he should have won with a Phoenix Splash. He hit a beautiful, yeah. high-arcing Phoenix Splash on Mochizuki. One of his better ones. One of his better ones. And then Mochizuki kind of kicked out, kind of didn't. And then Hulk picked him up for the first Flash, which you know means it was the, the supposed scheduled finish. And I don't really feel like he connected on the first flash all that well. It was like, it, it almost felt like that, the the half non-kick out, like broke BB Hulk's spirit for a moment because when he picked Mochizuki back up and did the kick, it was like an, ah, shit. Like, I gotta go do this now. Right. And it was just, it felt lazy and off-putting and it was upsetting to watch because before that, the match was, was very enjoyable. But because of the finish and how... I did not like the way that it transpired. I ended up going three and a half on this. I went three and three quarters. I, Which is where I was at before the bad finish. So we're on the same page. Yeah, we're on the same, same page. And the crazy thing about the first flash was that wasn't the second first flash hit in this match. He hit one earlier where he connected and it looked good. But the first flash really is a move that unless unless it's someone like Shingo Takagi who insists on taking it to the face – you have to make it look solid enough there, especially because of how prone the person is for the kick. And this was not a good first flash kick. Maybe it was the spirit. Maybe it was he was thrown off. And it it got really loose in that like that last sequence. And that did kind of pull it down. Post-match, 
we had a random lady in a dress that we, was identified as the dancer from Arizona, from Phoenix, who set up Hulk to be beaten down by Kamikaze USA. Uh, Moxley grabs the microphone, has a great line here. And one of the good marks of Gabe Continuity on the show, we took your hair, we took your dancers, and we're sooner going to take your belt. And then Yamato tries to... Uh, Shingo hits a Death Valley driver. Yamato picks him up for a Galleria on the belt to be saved by Brian Danielson for a huge pop. Okay. How do you feel about Danielson coming out here instead of just making his entrance when the match happened? Or like when, when the main event happened, I should say. Well, like the weird thing is, is that I don't remember the pay-per-view version of this, but I remember getting well, the yeah, DVD so of it. And this I, headlines the pay-per-view and it is the go-home angle, but I'm assuming because we didn't have access to the pay-per-view version, I'm assuming Danielson's not on it. It would violate his no compete. Right. But the Hulk, Hulk versus Mochizuki defense is what goes on last on the pay-per-view broadcast. And then I know the zombie girl makes an appearance. Yeah. But I guess they would have just had to cut it off after the Shingo move. I guess. I guess. Like, I don't remember. Like, it's just like a weird thing to think about, which for the crowd, for the live show, right move to do. But for absolutely, but for the pay-per-view, especially with the last pay-per-view had a long beatdown as well, probably not a good way to close out your pay-per-view with them switching it around and having that beatdown be the end of it, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's Especially two shows in a row. Well, it's, it was my complaint on the last show was there was too much Kamikaze USA dominance. I think it was overdone. But here, Hulk comes out. Uh, or, you know, I'm sorry, Hulk is out, uh, is getting beaten down, and then Brian Danielson comes out, and we get the hinting of some sort of BB Hulk and Brian Danielson partnership. Mm-hmm. And that would be something that would be fully explained later on in the show. Then we have a clip speaking about beatdowns of Hulk. It was the fearless attack of Hulk after his first uh, American Open the Dreamgate defense. The only thing we even saw, and to be honest, I was kind of like going, okay, I've seen this, and I fast-forward through it. I don't think Davey Richards made this cut. I feel like he was cut out of this clip because I did not notice Davey Richards in the beatdown. Did you? You know, I wasn't, I much like you, I wasn't paying close enough attention to it. It would not surprise me if Davey is not in the cut that they used. That just feels very on-brand for of 2010 games of Hall Skate. All right. Yeah, no, like that, that, that was my thought, at least. Like, it would make sense, especially given how things went with that. But after that, we had a match with two other new talents that we will be talking about a lot more as we continue to rewind and rewatch. Rich Swan versus Scott Reed. Rich Swan won in two minutes and four seconds with a standing 450 splash. This match was really nothing. It was just like a quick match where he got the, the right position to hit the 450 splash. They both got their shit in. Yeah. Uh, Scott Reed hit a crazy German suplex at one point. Laid it then, on his back of his head. Absolutely. And then Swan came back, did his stuff, hit the standing 450. This match went a little over two minutes. I'm not saying Naruki Doi versus Drake Younger should have been this short. I think there's a middle ground between <laughs> almost nine minutes and two minutes that they could have hit on. But had they done this style of match which is, you know, similar to what Doi did versus Shimizu in the most recent King of Gate, uh, in the first round of King Gate, the, the show that we just watched uh, from when we're recording this, I think the the Doi versus Drake match would have been much better served following a format like this. 
uh, because although this was not much of a match, I didn't give it a rating because it was so short. Same. It introduced Scott Reed and Rich Swan into the company, and much like Ricochet with the double moonsault, although Ricochet did not connect with that, Swan and his standing 450 got over because of this match. It's just like an insane move. Like, the double moonsault is insane in its own right, but the idea of someone being able to stand and do a full front flip in 90 degrees from the ring itself is insane to me. Like, I don't want to say that it's more impressive than the double moonsault because it's not, but it's remarkable in its own way. Yeah, it really, and it's a move that I don't think I appreciated for the longest time, but like watching it here, watching a young Swan do this, very impressive. How young was Rich Swan in this match, in this debut? Because he, he had to have been one of the younger people in the show. Okay. Because he's working CZW, and that's his highest profile gig at this point, but it looks like Swan was born in 91, so he's 19. Oh, crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. This is the show that really makes me feel old. But <laughs> but what does not feel old is what happened after this match because this match was really short for a reason because then Brody King ran in. And then Brody Lee. Brody Lee, yeah. Brody Lee. Sorry, Brody Lee. Sorry. If Brody King came in, that would have been interesting too. That is, I have a feeling Gabe would have done the exact same angle had he ever been able to book Brody King. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, Brody Lee ran in, lays everyone out, including Nicole Matthews, who was the uh, valet for Scott Reed for whatever reason other than that gives him the ability to for Brody Lee to grab the microphone and say, I don't I don't give a crap if it's a man, a woman, or a child. Next time in the ring, I'm going after a Japanese man. So Brody Lee, so an, <laughs> second show in the row, beating up a lot of people. So an unintentionally funny promo. Uh, Nicole Matthews was there because she was at the tryout. And I guess, I don't know if she came with Scott Reed, but she impressed enough at the, the tryout before the show to get a spot on the show. The Brody Lee promo is super funny because he points to Scott Reed, says man, points to Nicole Matthews, says woman, and then points to Rich Swan and says child. And then just it's not it's not problematic. It's just jarring to hear in 2020 that Brody Lee says explicitly, I want to beat up a Japanese man. Yeah. I just found that to be very funny for some reason. But we're two angles into Brody Lee and TG USA, and he's knocked both of them out of the park. At this point, I am salivating for Brody Lee to beat up a Japanese man. I, I think his character is very nicely developing at this point. Yeah, it is. Brody, Brody Lee is someone that I love watching Brody Lee beat people up. He's good at it. And his moves and his size is so distinct in this promotion. I think it was a solid move and something that when we were running down the card, I forgot this happened when we ran down this card last week and we saw Rich Swan versus Scott Reed. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. This would have been the debut. Completely forgot that Brody Lee came in and cleaned house after this match. Yeah, me too. Yep. And then that led to another historical clip of the Mercury Rising six man, and that led us to the eight-man tag team elimination match, Chikara Sekigun of Hallowick at Jigsaw Mike Quackabush, along with Musato Yoshino, defeating and getting a definitive conclusion against Kamikaze USA of Akira Tozawa, Gran Akuma, and John Moxley. This match was only 18 minutes and 34 seconds. Uh, going through the eliminations, Yamato eliminated Hollow Wicked with the Galleria in 8 minutes and 10 seconds. John Moxley was DQ'd, and then Jimmy Jacobs ran in, and they brawled to the outside because he hit Jigsaw in the head with a chair. And right after that, at 11.08, uh, Yamato got another Galleria on Jigsaw, eliminating him. Then we had... Mike Quackenbush eliminating Akum after a Yoshi tonic reversal. 
and then the finish happening simultaneously. Yoshino submitted Yamato with the Sol Naciente, while Quackenbush submitted Tozawa with the uh, Chikara Special in 18 minutes and 34 seconds. So, I have Mike, feel- where do you, Mike, where do you stand on this match? I want your take first. <sighs> I feel like, and on this is the most on-brand thing ever, I feel like Akira Tozawa is the glue of this match. I feel okay. like, I feel like other than uh, Yoshino and Yamato, he's the most over person in this match. I think that this match had a lot of people being very ambitious and it not working out for them. Okay. It, I, I'm not, I, this is an unfair question to ask if you don't have an answer to this, but is there any specific ambition gone wrong moments that pop up in your head now? Oh yeah. When, uh, Jigsaw tried to do like this double stomp, like crossbody thing. I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, that's fair. <laughs> well, that, like there was a lot of like that. There was like a Yoshino wasn't necessarily super solid in this match. Like there was like one of the messiest looking lightning spirals I've ever seen in this match. Like Yoshino, it wasn't just like the uh, American Western people who were off. Like Yoshino was not necessarily great in this match either. So, I recognize that. And I do think there are points in this match where people were too ambitious for their own good. But you're someone who just recently watched Steel Cage Warfare 2005, and you <laughs> remarked to me how messy of a match it was, yeah, and how poor the booking was, and how it just it was just a structural disaster. Mike, this is Gabe Sapolsky's magnum opus when it comes to laying out a multi-man match. Oh, all the eliminations I- worked here. Uh, Mike, I thought this match was brilliant. I I could not believe when I went and looked at other people's reviews that this was not touted as not only a great match, which I think it was, but as a just you don't see this kind of care in American wrestling. This is one of the few matches that involves any sort of American talent. And granted, you know, Yamato and Tozawa and Yoshino are in this match. But this, with the Japanese guys mixing it up with the American guys, felt like a fully authentic version of what Dragon Gate USA could have been. No. I I, I am blown away by the way the eliminations played out, with Yamato looking dominant. I was so intrigued as to... Because I've watched the show, but I didn't remember this match. And I I was trying to figure out, okay, how are they going to get Moxley out of here Who's going to be the last guy from Kamikaze? Like, is Quackenbush going to take a pin? Like, what is going to happen here? And Gabe navigated all of these landmines with Moxley getting DQ'd, which when it happened, I was like, eh, that's kind of lame. But then Jacobs came out. I was like, no shit, I'm into this. And then Yamato continues to dominate. And then you do the simultaneous submissions with Yoshino and Quackenbush, which was a cool moment. You know, my thoughts on Quackenbush aside, it was a really cool moment to see that in the middle of the ring. And on top of all of the booking that happened, you know, yes, they were overly ambitious at times, but this match felt really, really heated. I was stunned at how much the crowd was into this match. And I was stunned at the frantic energy involved by all eight competitors. Yeah. I will say that the ambition and then going for it, did not lose the crowd whatsoever. There was just, like, slip-ups. I was like, okay, and just kind of pulled me back with this. This is an excellently booked match. Like, looking at, like, the the eliminations, Yamato comes out of this looking like the strongest member of Kamikaze USA, fresh off of losing the Dreamgate title, defeats both 
Hallow Wicked and Jigsaw without much effort. Moxley, they move, remove him from the circumstances in a very start, smart way. Uh, Quackenbush gets the gets the his vengeance on Akuma, getting the pen on Akuma, and then like the the moment of both of the the two guys with the most overly elaborate submission finishers I could think of, both getting the submission finish at the same time, excellently booked. Even like the fact of like Jacobs coming in and then them showing them brawl outside of the arena, doing a little picture in picture for us. I thought that was really sm- smart, and I felt like that they did not like start this in a lot of ways that you would see like a Dragon Gate elimination match where everyone comes out and they're kind of just like, okay, we're going at this match. They brawled for like a solid first four minutes of this match, and I felt like that that was really well, and it felt really heated, like sh- like getting the idea of that this was a final conclusion match. It just was that there were moments for me that there were really cool moments that would have been like, okay, like this shows us. That that from both sides in this match, not just like the Jakar. I don't think it was Jakar people being out of depth. I feel like that everyone kind of just was a little bit loose about things and maybe bit off more than they could chew. And I still went three and a half stars on this match. I thought this was a and great match. I feel like that outside of the main event and outside of the four way match, I probably actually. This was as satisfying as the Freedom Gate match, even if it was not as good in my mind as it. And I feel like that this definitely did the purpose of this feud. It was a definitive end for the feud. You had Quackenbush and the Dreamgate champion standing tall in the ring after the match. You had Moxley continuing his thing of Jimmy Jacobs. You had you had Kirtozawa, who is not necessarily breaking out on the U.S. Indies at this point. But you could see the parts of where he's going to be breaking out here. And then you just had some things that just kind of went a little bit, uh, just a little bit askew. Uh, the one spot in this match that I thought was insane is we don't see the Ude Yoshino very much for obvious reasons. Like his neck can't take it. But there was a moment like in the in the finishing stretch where Yamato did the uh, converted the Ude Yoshino into the Galleria that looked absolutely sick. And that was like the big near fall of the match. And I thought that was incredible. It, it, it's a remarkable match. I think it's a remarkable place of booking. And I'm just a little disappointed that the little bit of looseness in the ring, a little bit of excitement jitters kind of took away from it for me in a little way. If that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. But I will counter with the idea that I gave this match four and a quarter stars. I really, when I what I like from wrestling is smart booking, and multi-man matches and good matches on top of that. But I, I have learned that I love a good six man, even a good tag team match a little bit more than I, that I love singles matches. I just like the way trios matches feel on this eight man. I, I was just so delighted by this match. I really think it is a high point for the company in terms of creative execution, which has been, one of the interesting things for me going back and watching the first year of this promotion, it's proving to be somewhat of a box office failure, even at this point. But I really think you cannot put that on Gabe Sapolsky's creative decisions, because as I've talked about on prior shows, he's giving fresh dragon gate wrestler versus dragon gate wrestler matches. He's implementing a not only stars, like Davey Richards, to an extent Brian Danielson, to an extent John Moxley, but he's implementing the next generation of American independent workers that would go on to take over the scene. And he's just, I think his creative 
is really underrated at this point. And I don't know when it goes downhill because it will go downhill at some point. But the first year, I think you have to chalk the box office failures up to the the global economy and the wrestling economy of 2009 and 2010. But creatively, Gabe Sapolsky is far from bankrupt. I think he had an incredible July 2009 through July 2010. And I think this match represents everything that he did well, kind of stuffed and forced into one match. And I I just, I loved this. I was so delighted by how good I thought this match was. This was for a year-long angle. And one that we, for for a year-long angle that we kind of bagged on some of the execution at points, especially talking about the Canadian shows, this was a completely satisfying conclusion. And at, at the point of how things really changed around the company, this was the opportunity really for Gabe to do a really strong beginning, middle, and end. And he is not creatively empty at this point. The, the drama has not gotten to him in an extent. We, but we see here, like, this idea and how it was accomplished, especially with how the finishes were, were was exceptional in this match. And I feel like that as, like, the big, like, through line in Season 1 of Dragon Gate USA, I would have to call this a, a success. Four and a quarter stars and the John Moxley promo that follows is not far behind. All right. So the promo afterwards, it, right? We see John Moxley. Maybe he just somehow lost track of Jimmy Jacobs, went inside, grabbed his jeans and his smokes and went straight outside case. Because that's that's how I'm choosing to interpret it. OK, I, thank you for saying that, because I actually I didn't have I, I didn't register with the way my notes are, how weird this was. But it, it hit me when I was watching it. This promo should have gone after Danielson versus Shingo in the DVD order. I don't understand why it was after this match because Moxley is outside with Mm -hmm. jeans and smokes, as you pointed out. So that eases my mind a little bit that maybe he just lost sight of Jimmy Jacobs and went outside. Yeah, because we don't see Jimmy at all. It's an excellent promo that as I was watching, I was going, wait, this is weird. The match just happened. It should have happened after Danielson versus Shingo, Mm -hmm. but I also like the way that you laid it out in your mind there. That helps me make more sense of it. Yeah, because he freaks out after the match. He attacks a, uh, he he attacks a roll-up door a lot, all the while keeping his cigarette lit and taking a post from it and saying that he's given him one last warning. And we'll see how things lead up to this in Chicago and in Milwaukee. But I thought this was like Moxley at this point is completely gratiated. He's firing on all cylinders at every moment here. And I thought that this promo, even for like a time where like, Gabe's production isn't to the level of what Ring of Honor was putting out. They would already be switching to HD. Gabe has not yet. But he just had like this really cool aesthetic of just being of like a back alley somewhere around Swanson and Rittner where he's like freaking out, smoking a cigarette, only being lit by like the street lights. I thought it was such a cool effect. And one of the better uses of John Moxley, as we'll see like throughout like his remaining tenure in Dragon Gate USA, Gabe got John Moxley better than any other booker until John Moxley went to AEW. And I thought like that this was an exceptional promo here. Like I said, when Moxley was introduced, I was really wondering how his promos were going to age because there was a point in time where they were not only really buzzworthy, but I bought into that buzz. I mean, at this point, when I was introduced to Moxley, it would have been post his FCW run, but before he debuted with The Shield. There was like a six-month gap there where I remember somebody showing me 
a Moxley promo compilation because that was it was like a half hour of John Moxley promos. Oh yeah, and, on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember loving that at the time. And then we lost, you know, six years of Moxley thanks to WWE. Which you know, you look at Moxley and Brody Lee on these shows, it's like how fucking hard is this? It's you know, <laughs> right. it's, it's not. Um, look, look what's happening but, in AEW. They're basically like the evolutions of these, like six years later, and yeah, they're the same people, yeah. and they work basically as well as Gabe had him here in DGUSA. It's insane. It's, it's sickening. But anyways, I was very curious to see how these Moxley promos were going to hold up. Not necessarily the content in them, but just his demeanor and the way he came across. I, I was afraid that maybe it was going to be a little goofy, but we have not hit that point yet. I, I This was another Moxley promo where afterwards I was like, fuck, man, I really like this guy. Yeah, no, like at this point, John Moxley is insane. So... Yeah, no, I, I I thought that this was incredible. We had a clip from Uprising. I fast forwarded through this to be honest. I thought it was the uh, Yamato Shingo versus CK one tag match. The clip there, it from was. It was that. Yeah, it was, but it was nothing it consequential. Was, it was nothing. But then we had the main event in a match that I have a little bit of struggle here. Case before we get into this, I don't know whether or not this now is my favorite match in DGUSA history because it's up there for me. Let's talk about the match, and then we'll get let's, into. Let's go six. through it. And then you can make that decision as, as we're going along. All right. So the main event was Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi. He defeats Shingo Takagi in 29 minutes and 15 seconds with the LaBelle lock. This match, from the outset through the whole half hour of it, had the big match aura and everything into it. Like, these two guys were deliberate. They were incredible. And this might be one of my favorite all-time Danielson performances. So... Let's go back to 2006 for a second. Oh, Danielson, do. <laughs> an easier time for all of us. I was seven. I was crushing it on the basketball court. Uh, Mike was in his 20s, maybe? I would have just turned 20. I was, Sick. I was in college in rural North Carolina. I had pretty long hair at that time. I was really good. I, I was really in like my emo into metal phase. I was just, I was excelling at life at this point. You can hear more about that on the Art School Albums podcast that Mike Spears was on. But anyways, I want to go back to I was to listening to that album at that time. <laughs> yes, American football. But specifically, I want to go back to 2006 Ring of Honor. The last show they run that year, it's Final Battle 2006. Homicide beats Danielson for the belt. And what happens there, afterwards rather, Danielson has an injury, goes away, heals up, and then spends March and April of 2007 working in Canada and working in pro wrestling Noah. So we don't see Danielson in ring of honor until May of that year. He returns at the respect has earned pay-per-view in 2007, but because Danielson has such a legendary run in ring of honor, um, he actually returned at reborn again, uh, which I forgot about, which is the night before respect has earned. Anyways, the thing with Danielson is that once his Ring of Honor title run ended, for the rest of his time in Ring of Honor, really no one was on his level. And at times it would create booking conundrums because, you know, a lot of my favorite Danielson stuff is 2007, 2008, early 2009 Ring of Honor, um, where he's wrestling Claudio. He has a really good match with Quackenbush on a Ring of Honor show. Yes. I like that era of Danielson a lot. But I like those matches in a vacuum because the booking of it is very awkward because with the exception of Takashi Morishima, Takeshi Morishima, with the exception of Austin Aries to an extent, and with the exception of Nigel McGuinness, 
no one feels like a viable threat to Danielson. And his the rest of his run in Ring of Honor, they would be putting guys in front of him, whether it's Claudio or Chris Hero or Davey Richards. And Davey came close, but he just, the timing wasn't there for him to fully take over the company as Danielson was leaving. But guys like Claudio and Hero, top of the line stars, I don't really feel like they were ever a, a viable threat to Danielson's position in the company. And what makes the Morishima matches so interesting is that Danielson is working from underneath and that he has to pull out all of the tools in his tool belt in order to beat this guy. And seeing him back on the American Independence, look at the rest of his run, the Bobby Fish match from the night before, the work he did in Chikara, the work he did in WXW and the Ambition Tournament. Danielson is feared because he's so great but there is never a fear that he is going to lose those matches. Forget the business politics at play. It's just, it's Brian Danielson. He's going to win. But the magic of this Shingo Takagi match is that Shingo is a viable threat to, to Brian Danielson the same way that a Morishima was and the same way that a Nigel was. And I have seen this match many times, but I had legitimately forgotten who came out on top in this match same, and same. watching it. <laughs> I was so sucked in to every near fall and every submission attempt because Shingo was brilliant in this match. And Danielson was just as good. It's it's two of the best 20 wrestlers of all time in a wrestling match. It makes sense that it was a great match. But the, the dichotomy of Danielson just not even just the fact that he wasn't dwarfing an opponent on the American Indies in terms of in terms of his stature was such a refreshing change of pace from the Danielson that is mostly present from 2007 onwards until he signs and then is ever so present in his second indie run once he's fired from the company. This is not a Dragon Gate match. If you are going in expecting a Dragon Gate style of match, I I Mike might disagree. I don't think so. This you know, I, I was just saying, I guess it was actually on the podcast we taped before. Anyway, we did two podcasts tonight. Anyways, I've been watching a lot of classic All Japan lately. And so I don't want to make this comparison because I've been watching a lot of classic All Japan lately. But I will say this. I think Shingo's time, however long it may was, we however long it was, we do not know. But Shingo's time in the Animal Hamaguchi Dojo was ever so present in this match. This almost had a King's Road feel to it, a big Noah match. Like, it was more in that style than any sort of Dragon Gate work rate main event. And that is what makes this match so intriguing because it stands out not only for the star power, but it stands out from the rest of what were great matches on this great show. And the thing that really resonated with me and... This was one of the few shows that we really didn't talk too much about when we were watching it with each other, which I think this kind of made this really interesting how divergent we are about some certain things. But we came together on this match because this match felt like an event. This match had Brian Danielson on a lot of way doing his super senior year of college, of indie wrestling college, if you will, if you want to go with me on this case, coming back and picking the guys he's facing, winning basically all of his matches. But this match had the big match feel and it felt incredible. He had Brian Danielson who is in his prime here. There would be other peaks he would have when he returns to WWE, but I would say like this is prime Brian Danielson against someone like Shingo Takagi who 
probably is still another like true three to four years out of his true prime, I would say. Which about starting in like 2014 with the tag team with Akira Tozawa, would you say like that was when we were about to reach peak, at least Dragon Gate centered uh, peak uh, Shingo Takagi? Yeah, his peak was 2015. I think Shingo's in his prime at this point. I think Shingo's been in his prime for a decade, but his peak he in terms have of been in his prime for, since when debuted. he debuted. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, his peak was 2014, 2015. So yeah, I'm on board with this. So this was a match that was incredibly smartly worked by both men here because Brian Danielson did not come out to a final countdown. He just came out waving his t-shirt that he designed, throwing it in the crowd and just standing there in the all where he was a god to the 700 to 800 people in the ECW arena. And Shingo Takagi, realizing this, decided to pull out the bully traits that we would see a lot more in his true peak in 2015-2016. It just was a lot of like perseverance and the idea of Shingo bullying Brian Danielson around, Brian Danielson persevering. And there's like this little moment, moment that happened Right before Brian Danielson did his kip up after the the top rope mint, missile drop kick, that you could tell him like summoning like the energy, the courage of this war that's happening in a ring that they say is about 115 degrees under the lights case, where like he has like the moment of going like where you can almost see like the thought crossing his mind of I'm letting this soak in just for a split second before I do this kip up because as we all know now he returned back to WWE after this tenure and maybe this is like him thinking like this is the thing I'm going to miss or this is the thing I missed is like this kind of thing. Cause you definitely felt that in this moment. And you also had this moment from Shingo also later in the match where Danielson's doing his mounted elbows and Shingo and he rolls over. So instead of it doing him laying on top of him, elbowing him, Shingo, he's across Shingo's shoulders while Shingo's on the mat and he's elbowing him. And then you see like this moment where you think that this is going to be an, uh, like the uh, referee stoppage finish that he made famous to the elbows. But then you see Shingo like, almost lose it and then snap back into it being so pissed off from the elbows that he takes him right from doing the elbows onto his shoulders and does a stage room that was insane and this is just this is like one of these matches that during this series i am really thankful for watching because i know how many times i've i've watched this match so many different times but like during this time period that we live in seeing a match like this where you have a guy in his prime and a guy that has in his prime but not yet reached the peak of his prime coming together because of the bizarre circumstances of NXT and the Nexus debut, we probably would not have had this match if someone said, hey, Brian, these are things you can do and can't do in the Nexus debut. But because no one smartened up Brian Danielson, we had... Because of gross neglect. Because of gross neglect, we had this match. So thank you, WWE, for being a terrible company and having basically a pox on the industry and so oppressive that we got to have... This match here, that four and three quarter stars, my most five star fear match I've had so far. And God, this is, if you're someone who's actively avoiding uh, empty arena wrestling, and I don't blame you, go on YouTube. This match, the show's two hours and 36 minutes. Figure it's about 220 or so that this thing starts up and watch this match because this match is a piece of art. In terms of English speaking fans, I think I trail. Only Alan Forel and Drangate J when it comes to the amount of Shingo Takagi footage I've watched, because I've watched more of his New Japan stuff than you. So I think yes. you I think I Easily. have you beat. Yeah. Um, I've watched a lot of Brian Danielson. I own every compilation DVD Ring of Honors put out Danielson's time in that company. 
I've seen the PWG greatest hits. I've watched him in IWA Mid-South. I am lower on all of his WWE stuff than everybody else is. Like, there are people that just don't like Rey Mysterio's WWE run. They don't like the formula of it. I feel that way about Danielson and WWE. Um, I think there's, you know, a really good CM Punk match that's out there. I like the John Cena match, but not as much as other people. I think the Triple H match from WrestleMania is fine. So this this run is the last era of Danielson that I really, really enjoy. And when I think about Danielson's history as a professional wrestler, I have his 2006 match with Kenta in Ring of Honor, five stars. I have his 2009 PWG farewell match against Chris Hero at five stars. When you look at Shingo Takagi, Shingo versus Susumu 3 in Drangate UK 2011, that is a five-star match. Shingo versus Mochizuki 2015 Gate of Destiny. It's one of the 10 greatest matches I've ever seen. That is a five-star match. And his New Japan Best of the Super Juniors final with Will Ospreay, that is a five-star match. And when they came together, two of the 20 greatest wrestlers of all time, Enter the Dragon 2010, Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi. That is a five-star match. So, Case, this is the best match we've watched so far in Dragon Gate USA history. Indeed it is. You, I thought I was, I was going to stick with the with the tag match with Speed Muscle, but I think this is it. I think this is the best match in Dragon Gate USA history, and it is one of those matches that if I were to make a comp tape of best matches of this era, best matches of anyone's career, any of these guys' career, this might be the last match I put on the DVD as like the capper on it. Because as much as people have loved... Shingo as Mr. Selfish, as much as they have loved him as the dragon. This to me is peak Shingo Takagi. And as much as people love Mr. the Mr. Small Package, as much as people love Best in the World, as much as people love American Dragon, this is his like senior thesis. Like going on my super senior thing. This is like his special project he came back and did, Case. And it's so remarkable and so special at this match. Through circumstances and gross neglect. We had this match on the show, and I think there's only a few matches I know on the top of my back of my head that might rival this match as we go through rewind and rewatch. I think this might be the high water mark that everything else is going to try to reach up to and fail. I viscerally disagree with this being the last match on a Shingo comp DVD. That is absurd, Mike. Uh, that is just not, I'm not co-signing that. As for a Danielson comp tape, yeah, this is it. I mean, I, you know, I, I again, I, I have issues with the way he's presented on WWE TV. I don't like the style that he is forced to work. I am lower on all of his stuff in that company. The Kofi Kingston match, another one I thought was fine. But his WWE run has never really connected with me. So this is it. This is, well, this run, rather, because what's coming next is is also exciting. I will say this. You mentioned when you were talking about the match that, you know, Danielson has that moment where he's about to kip up and he kind of milks it for an extra second as if, you know, to say, I'm, I'm going to miss this or, you know, this is this is what feels like home, but I have to go off somewhere else. That's not a definite at this time. Right. Because what happens after the match and stuff that we will go on to break down more in the next episode but Brian Nelson, after the match, declares himself with BB Hulk standing next to him to be 
the um I have to be careful not to say World One International because that's what's yeah. in my mind, but the American representative of World One. So how long Gabe thinks he has Danielson at this point is unknown, but July twenty fourth, two thousand ten. Gabe Sapolsky thinks he has Danielson for at least long enough to implement him into the biggest angle in the company. Yeah, and this whole thing that just happens is Yamato comes out and goes face-to-face with Danielson, and then Shingo gets taken out for Hulk. Nice little callback, a nice little thing about what's going on those two. And then Moxley pulls Kamikaze USA to the back, and then Danielson basically cuts promo saying, I know that a big thing here now is you're trying to find, like, American representatives, you're trying to find... You're, all these units are expanding. I want to join Russell. I want to. You see, you always call it World One. I call it Russell One or World One National <laughs> Wrestle. He says, "I want to join World One," and they cut to black right after they shake hands. Uh, Hulk is wearing the ridiculous, but I still love the the World One pants. Do you remember like those black pants? Oh, I, oh, I can't stand those. It's funny you brought that up because when he was in the ring, I was like, "Man, those pants suck." Oh, oh it was such a thing at that time. Like now, everyone kind of has like the colored track suits, and they all look kind of uniform like this. But everyone had like really wild ringside gear at this time, and this is the the World One thing. Is then you have you you have BB Hulk, the uh, Open the Freedom Gate champion, fresh off of the his defense, but also the biggest loss of his career at this point. His head shaved. He's not dancing. He's really kind of in the stages before he's going to transform to a whole character that he would play for the for, for the next few years. And then you have Brian Danielson, who really was the best in the world at this point. It was just such a remarkable note for this show to come out come out of. It's such like a thing of promise. Like if you like at this time going through this, I like, thinking like Hell yeah. Danielson's now a member of World 1. Is he going to Dragon Gate now? Is this going to be like an ongoing thing? And it just felt like that there was so much hope in this. And it felt like that this is like the senior, the super senior who was going to take exactly the courses he wanted to take, blow off as much as he wanted to, but he was just doing what he wanted to do, and he wanted to join World 1. And it felt really special and unique. Mike, we've entered the Dragon, and now we have to close the gate. Through one year of Dragon Gate USA shows is Enter the Dragon 2010 the best DG USA show of all time? Personally, to me, no, it's not. What beats it? I think I still love Fearless. Fearless or Untouchable Gate? I'm sorry, Untouchable Gate. Untouchable there you Gate. Go. Yeah, sorry. I always get those two mixed up in my head. No, Untouchable Gate. Uh, Open the Untouchable Gate, the second show in Chicago is still my favorite one because you had Danielson and Doi and Shingo and, and Davey. Like, what, what's there not to love about that? Like, that might be, like, two of the most insane matches that they had very close to each other, and it's just a remarkable thing. And then you had, so, and then yes, you had the, uh, you, you had Young Bucks versus Maraha Sapa on that show. I mean, there's so much in that show that I loved. So I'm looking at that card right now and kind of sizing it up, because I believe I gave the, the Dragon Kid Yoshino opener four stars, four and a half to Danielson versus Doi, and four and three quarters to Davey versus Shingo. The, you know, the, the cards are similar, I think, in structure because um, there's the Shima Dragon Kid or the Shima Brian Kendrick match, which kind of acts as the Rich Swan versus Scott Reed showcase match to some extent. I don't like the main event of Untouchable Gate all that much. And then there's the Chikara Kamikaze tag. But on Enter the Dragon, I have a, you know, a, a fine three and a half star opener, a four and a half star four way. Forget the Doy Drake match, a three and a half star Freedom Gate match, a fun little segment with Swan, Reed, and Brody Lee. I thought a masterful four and a half, uh, four and a quarter star 
uh, Sekigun versus Kamikaze match, and then a five-star main event. Mike, this is the best Dragon Gate USA show I've seen up to this point. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think if matches hit me a, d- a separate, a different way like they hit you, this would be my favorite show as well. But I think I, th- I think it's the the elimination tag really puts it over the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's really where the two of us truly diverged on the show. So, yeah, this is one of those things that, in a lot of ways, I think this is probably the best booked show Gabe put together to this point. And I think it ended the show with like one of the brightest moments in company history. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really compelling watch from start to finish. And the fact that this show is up on YouTube in full for free means that you need to go watch it. It is a really fun, enjoyable blend of everything that was right about Drangate USA. Yeah, and we've talked about like eras and like the idea of like the big American stars here. But this group of Americans now that we really have are the Americans we're going to be sticking with for the most part for the remainder of Drangate USA. We have Johnny Gargano, we have Ricochet, we have Rich Swan, we have Chuck Taylor. We have Eric Cannon. We have Sammy. We have Sammy Callahan on the on the undercard. We're getting to a point of what the the majority of the remainder of the time of Dragon Gate USA would be like. This is after talking about like how things were felt really weird, but like we're moving in the right the right direction about like the worst hour and the history at on Mercury Rising, and then the two bizarre Canada shows in retrospect. This is a lot of what we will be have going forward. If you're someone who's never watched Dragon Gate USA before, get used to these characters because these are the people that the promotion will be built on over the next three years. Yeah, it's well, we've talked about it at length that Dragon Gate USA has to go through a reset within their first year of existence. And in a way, with the now featured American talent coming out of this show, this is a jumping off point if for whatever reason you don't want to watch the first year of shows, which, you know, I, I don't understand that line of thinking, but this is also a jumping off point for the promotion where Kamikaze versus Chikara is over. You now have Gargano and Ricochet and Eric Cannon and Rich Swan and Chuck Taylor on the card. I mean, this is this is like Mike said, this is the foundation for what's to come. So it's a really enjoyable two and a half hour watch. Yeah. And that's the insane thing about the show. It's only two and a half hours. Like think about how crazy shows are now with like three hour, four hour shows, two and a half hours. It's let it's, it will take you less time to watch it. If you fast forward through the stuff you're not interested in than an episode of dynamite and more so than an episode of raw. Like it is a remarkable show and it gets my highest recommendation. But case that is not the, that's not the end of dragon gate USA because we have entered the dragon for 2010, but it's time for us to get untouchable again. <laughs> that was a really awkward segue. I apologize, Mike. Mike that was a stretch. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to. I, I feel like I'm pretty good at segues at time. That was not my best work. I apologize. I, I. You know what? It's my Russell Westbrook theory. I would rather have a guy try too hard than not try hard enough. And so I respect the effort. As we move into Untouchable 2010, a show that will feature the following matches, including BB Hulk, Akira Tozawa, and Mike Quackenbush in a three-way match, which is just bizarre. We have a Brody Lee handicap match against Da Soul Touches, Dragon Kid and Shingo score off in a King of Gate 2010 rematch, a street fight between Jimmy Jacobs and John Moxley. Four-way freestyle, Drake Younger, Chuck Taylor, Johnny Gargano, and Rich Swan get used to those names. 
a tag team match world one of Masato Yoshino and Naruki Doi versus Shima and Ricochet and Mike, your main event, former Open the Dream Gate champion Yamato against Brian Danielson. This is going to be a really interesting show to watch. I'm like, I'm like looking at the card right now and Shima and Ricochet get used to hearing that a lot too. A a fruitful pairing, yeah. Uh, one that uh, benefited both men's careers, quite honestly. Fair. That's very true. That's very true. And wow, I when I was taking notes for the show, I was like, oh wow, we uh, we did a lot of timeline stuff because there was a lot to get to, and I thought we were moving along, moving along until we got to the end of it. This has been a very enjoyable episode, but this might actually end up being our longest episode so far of Rewind and Rewatch so far. And talking about your best show in history my second best show in history but our unanimous open the voice gate current best match in dgusa history this has been a remarkable episode talking about just a time that at least in my case i revisiting all this stuff was had like you, you know the thing like deja vu and, and jama vu is the big thing about dragon kid like this was like probably the strongest sense of deja vu i've had so far going through the series it's a really enjoyable watch. I'm I'm glad we spent as much time as we did on it because I think this show warranted that. This show warrants it as we basically pleaded with y'all. Check out this show. It's on YouTube. You don't have to sign up for Gabe's bad service. <laughs> this is why we we never get plugs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, let's bring this in for the landing case. Uh, what else do you want to plug before we get out of here? I'm on Twitter at underscore in your case. Both Mike and I tweet from the open the voice gate account at open voice gate. And uh, I also have another podcast. If you're not sick of hearing my voice at this point, you can log on over to the art school albums podcast where I've had Mike Spears on the show. I've had Aaron Bentley of the everything elite podcast. Uh, by the time this comes out, Dr. Keith of Dr. Keith presents an AAW. Okay. We did an episode very near and dear to my heart a very brave episode as we tackled a troubling subject that will be out by the time this is out. So I encourage you, if you have any interest in either hearing my voice or uh, a timeline that most or a podcast that mostly covers alternative music, I suggest you check out the art school albums podcast. I mean, and also you, you understand Dr. Keith's on this, like biggest get like screw Bentley and I, whatever, Dr. Keith, like I'm just so stoked for this. Like, you, you, didn't, you didn't give me a heads up about this episode. So I am, as we're recording this, I know it's going to be a while before I get to listen to this and I can't wait. Uh, I'm at Fujiheya on Twitter. As Kay said, we both tweet at Open Voicegate. At this point, you probably know what you get from my Twitter account. I feel awkward doing plugs about what I tweet about. It's a lot of Dragon Gate stuff. It's a lot of all elite wrestling stuff and it's a lot of my inner psyche. It, it's a weird ride. Come join it. But that's going to do it for this episode of Rewind and Rewatch. We'll be back with you next week with Untouchable 2010. Take care, everyone. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.